0: We've all done it, we've done it regarding our classmates in high school, if you've gone to college, you've probably done it with those that you went to college with. We've even done it with people we worked with years and years ago, and we've probably done it with uh, movie stars that aren't as famous today as they used to be, say, what? ever are you talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is if you're ever asked the question, whatever happened to fill in the blank? You ever done that? Uh, you've known people and then all of a sudden you ask, boy, I hadn't thought of them in years. I wonder whatever happened to and fill in the blank. I've done it many, many times. Well, uh, something very similar to that happens in the book of Genesis. As you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis, episode by episode, but when we come to chapter 36, there's an interesting little phenomenon that amounts to something similar to whatever happened to. Only there's a slight difference because in our case, we're usually thinking about individuals. And in the case of Genesis chapter 36, the issue is more what happened to certain families. At any rate, it's the idea of whatever happened to. Now, keep that in mind, and let's look at Genesis chapter 36. Now, The first verse says, now this is the genealogy of Esau who is Edom. Now I wanna pause on that verse and I wanna talk about that um, in light of the whole book of Genesis. If you're interested in the book as a whole, this is a very important notation. As a matter of fact, that little phrase, this is the generation of, appears 11 times in the book of Genesis. Now, if you've been following me through the book of Genesis, you've heard me say that uh, as we've gone through each of these 11 times. It is the key to the structure of this book. This is like saying This is a series of histories. That's the point of the book of Genesis. Now, this little phrase has a problem, so I want to talk about it for a minute. Some have said that when you see this phrase, this is the generation of in the book of Genesis, and it appears elsewhere, by the way, a few times, that it is referring to what came before that. And there are a few passages in Genesis where that seems to be the case. However, in most of the cases, it's very clear that it appears to what is after, not what is before, and that is the traditional view. That when you see this little phrase in Genesis, it means that which came after. And then, if you decide that issue, there's another issue after that, even if you take the traditional view, And that is, uh, there's no indication whatsoever it is used of the birth or origin of the person named. So it says this is the generation of Esau, but it doesn't talk about Esau as much as it talks about his descendants, including his sons and grandsons as I will point out in just a bit. But I wanna focus on this phrase in Genesis 36.1 and this is the generation of. Let me tell you this, the Hebrew word means begat. It is used of generations and successive generations. In other words, these headings delineate the historical results from a beginning point. Now that one little statement, I think captures the essence of this phrase. This phrase delineates the history that results from a beginning point. So in this verse, the beginning point is Esau. Now we're gonna trace not Esau's life, but the history of his descendants. So when it says this is the generation of Esau, that's the starting point, and then the rest of the chapter is going to give us a history of his descendants. One scholar said, quote, this is what became of, or this is where to start from. Another said, this is a, in the wider sense, a family history. And still another says, this is what became of. And that's why I started the message as I did. Whatever happened to? Well, that's sort of what's going on in Genesis 36, verse 1. This is the generation of Esau. It's like saying, oh yeah, Esau, whatever happened to him? And in this case, it's not just him as an individual, but him and his family. So the person mentioned after the expression is usually not the central figure in the selection but the person who originates what follows. Now, let me tell you why I'm camping on this little phrase for a minute. Years ago, I stumbled upon uh, some material written by a scholar in England. And he suggested that these little phrases in the book of Genesis, indicates a written source that Moses used to write that section. As a matter of fact, there's a case where, early in the book, it says this is the book of the generation of. And that's sort of the clue that these 11 occurrences of this phrase is really talking about something that, was written elsewhere and that is moses source now you're going to say to that i thought the bible was the word of god how could he use a source well the bible is very clear that sources are used in some of its writing Uh, matter of fact uh, theologians make a distinction between revelation and inspiration revelation is the revealing of something you didn't know inspiration is the writing down of something you might be writing down something you experienced so it isn't necessarily something god revealed that's the bible's full of that take the epistles of paul for example that inspiration just says the holy spirit directed that person to write down that bit of information the source of the information May have been a revelation directly from God, like the 10 commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. It could be from personal experience. It could be from observation, like the book of Proverbs. It could be from your personal experience. That doesn't matter. The Bible is inspired in the sense that the Holy Spirit instructed people to write stuff down. And in that sense, it's inspired. Now, that means, if this theory is correct, and I think it is, that Moses had sources. I mean, what's in the book of Genesis happened hundreds of years before he lived. So where did he get all of this information? Did God reveal it to him? There's no indication of that in the book of Genesis. What is an indication in the book of Genesis is that he had the book of the history of And the short version of that appears 10 other times. So that 11 times in the book of Genesis, he is telling us this is the history of, this is what happened to, and he probably got that information from somebody else, and the Holy Spirit had him write it down. Did all that make sense? Did you follow that? Well, let me tell you how significant this is. Let me tell you the occurrences. The first time it appears is in chapter two, verse four. And it says, this is the generation of the heaven and the earth. It is suggested that maybe Adam wrote that. Would that be interesting? If Adam is the one that first wrote down what happened in the first chapter of Genesis? As a matter of fact, chapter five, verse one says, this is the generation of Adam maybe he wrote that uh, or it says this is the generation of Noah this is the generation of the sons of Noah this is the generation of Shem this is the generation of Terah, which was Abraham's father this is the generation of Ishmael this is the generation of Isaac this is the generation of Esau And now we have an interesting little thing that brings us to chapter 36, verse 1. And the only time this happens in the book of Genesis, it says that same thing in verse 9. And this is the generation of, and it says Esau again. Only time in the book of Genesis, it's repeated of the same person. And then when we get to chapter 37, verse 2, it's going to tell us, This is the generation of Jacob. So these are probably uh, books, written material, sources that date all the way back to the time the thing happened. So suppose Genesis is an account of the flood written by Noah. Would that be interesting or what? And so forth through the book. I think that view has some merit. Now, while I'm talking about the book, now that I've laid out 11 parts, you're never going to remember those 11 parts, right? So let me talk about how the book is organized. I I just did that in telling you these 11 occurrences, but it's possible to group some of these together. And when most people try to outline the book of Genesis, that's what they do. And they come up, this is a very common way to do it. They talk about the fact that Genesis 1 through chapter 11 is all talking about what happened before the patriarchs were on the scene. Beginning in chapter, actually chapter 11, verse 27, Uh, And going to the end of the book in chapter 50, it's basically all about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the way to group these together is some of these were before the patriarchs and some of these were after the patriarchs. So the outline would talk about what happened in the primeval history, that is before the patriarchs, and what happened during patriarchal history. Now, that's the outline of the book. Is this boring? Interesting? Did I put you to sleep? What I think is interesting about this is we may have very accurate historical material here. Uh, So let me say one more thing, and we'll get to chapter 36. And that one more thing is this. What's the subject of the book of Genesis? I've heard all my life that the subject is beginning. Uh, there's no question but that beginning is there. At least some of the beginnings are there. The beginning of the heavens and the earth, the beginning of mankind. How does the flood fit into that? Uh, How does um, all this material on Jacob fit in that? you know how many chapters we've gone through and just talking about Jacob? We've been in that thing for months it seems like. Not quite, yeah, at least two. And um, that doesn't quite satisfy everything. Uh, It's true that it's the beginning of the heavens and the earth, it's true that it's the beginning of sin, it's true that it's the beginning of mankind, it's true that it's the beginning of uh, the patriarchs and that means Israel, but if that was the purpose and the subject, he could have written a much shorter book. So what is the subject? I concede The most popular idea is it's the book of beginnings. Uh, But I don't think that's the subject that explains everything in the book. I think the subject of the book is something like election or selection. What this book is doing is telling us that God chose certain people to do certain things. So he chose to create the heavens and the earth. He elected to create Adam and Eve. They sinned, and he then, when sin got so bad, elected, chose Noah to preach. And then the book book really focuses on he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he really emphasizes that. So that um, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. So he says, no, it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God says, no, it's not Esau, it's Jacob. Now, what did he choose them for? Why did he choose them? Why did he select those three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why? And I've said this now repeatedly. We'll say it again uh, probably before we end the study of this book. But the answer is he chose them to do a couple of things. Number one, to give them the land of Palestine. You know what is the biggest problem in the world right now? Who owns Palestine? And the Jews claim it's theirs, and the Arabs claim it's theirs. Now, I think the Jews have Genesis on their side. God said, I'm giving the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The other thing God said is, and I'm gonna make you a great nation. Out of you are gonna come lots and lots of people. And through you, is going to come the Messiah. So God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land, to make them a great nation, and to bring the Messiah to us. If you understand that, you understand most of what's going on in the book of Genesis. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. Now, I just said God chose Abraham. And Abraham had two sons. Remember their name? You forgot them already, didn't you? Ishmael and Isaac. Genesis records, very briefly, what happened to Isaac. Well, what happened to Ishmael? It touches on that briefly. All right, we're going to follow Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac had two sons. Remember their names? Jacob and Esau. Now, we've just spent Weeks and weeks talking about Jacob. Well, what happened to Esau? And that brings us to chapter 36. That's what's going on in chapter 36. It says, oh yeah, what happened to Esau? So if you look at chapter 36, what you will discover is there's one long list of names, one name right after another. So what is going on? Why are these names even here? What's the big deal about tracing the lineage of Esau in the first place? Why is this in the book at all? Well, those questions have some real interesting answers. So let me begin by pointing out that the division of this chapter is in two parts the first part is chapter in verses one to eight this is the generation of esau now drop down to verse nine and this is the generation of esau the father of the edomites in mount sir that's the division it's mentioned twice now why did he mention it twice what's the difference between Verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 43. Lots of verses and lots and lots of names. The answer to that question is verses 1 to 8 are the personal history of Esau. It talks about his wives and his children and him personally where he moved to. 9 through 43 is a history of his descendants. So there is a difference between the two sections in chapter 36. It's his personal history, and you might call it his political history because of what, where he went and what happened at that point, which I'll get to in a minute. So let me just very briefly summarize verses one to eight. This is his personal history. Verses two and three tell us about his wives. And what is important in those verses is that verse two says, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. He married three women who were Canaanites. Now the Jews were not supposed to marry the Canaanites. They were supposed to marry fellow Jews. he married the Canaanites. And in fact, um, he married three of them. Uh, There's not a whole lot of information in verses uh, two and three besides that, except for their names, some of which are hard to pronounce. So let's drop down to verses four and five. Then it says, now one of those wives bore. So in verse four, we're going to get his children. And what these verses tell us is that he had five sons. Verses four and five just talk about his sons. Well, did he only have sons? And the answer is no. Look at verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters. So obviously he had sons and daughters, but verses four and five only list his sons for some reason. Now, this is his personal history. gives us his wives and his children. The other thing that's mentioned is the fact that he left the land of Palestine and went somewhere else. So let's read beginning in verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all of his animals and all the goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Sur, Esau is Edom. Now underline that, that's the point. Esau is Edom. Now, let me explain two things before we go on. Number one, the reason he left is that he and uh, Jacob both had these large flocks and herds and the land was not large enough to feed both. So Esau packed up his wives, his children and all of his possessions And he went south. Now this would be a good place to show a map. Uh, Let me see if I can explain. I want you to imagine a map. Got a map in your head? No, you don't. I haven't told you what to put on it yet. (laughs) All right. I want you to imagine that there's a map and there's a line down the page. And on that side of the line is the Mediterranean Sea and this line is the western border of Israel, the land of Israel. Now I want you to move uh, to the right of the page, and at the top I want you to draw a little circle. That little circle is the Sea of Galilee. Then I want you to draw a wiggly line, and then I want you to draw an oblong circle after the wiggly line. And that wiggly line is the Jordan River. It moves like a snake, it's not straight. And that oblong line at the end of the Jordan River is the Dead Sea. That is the land of Palestine. It's bordered on the west by the Mediterranean, it's bordered on the east by the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. Up north, all the mountains flow in the rain, flow and the rivers flow into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee empties into the Jordan River. The Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea. Now it's called dead because there's no outlet, and the reason there's no outlet is when you get to the Dead Sea, it is 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest spot on the face of the earth, and so this little body of water collects all the minerals that come out of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and doesn't have any place to go. So it is like 33% salt, and if you go there and go swimming there, you float. I've done it. You just walk in the water and take your feet off the bottom, and you float. There's so much salt in the water, you float. Now, that is basically the Sea of Galilee, I mean the land of Israel, from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. There is some land just south of that. Now, if you go still further east and go south of that, uh, you're in the modern state of Jordan, and... You're in the ancient land of Edom. So what this passage is telling us is that Esau left this land I just described to you and went over to what is modern Jordan and went south and dwelt there. That is what happened to Esau. I began by saying, whatever happened to, and if you wanna know whatever happened to, and you're talking about Esau, he went to Edom. As a matter of fact, Esau is Edom. That's the point of the first eight verses of this chapter. Now there's a second question you might ask, and that is, well, whatever happened to his children? Whatever happened to his grandchildren? Whatever happened to his descendants? Now the Bible doesn't tell us any stories, doesn't give us any events, because it's focusing on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants because they produced the Israelites. But there is a reason, which I haven't given you yet, as to why we want to know what happened to Esau. So the Bible at least pauses long enough to tell us What happened to Esau? Answer so far is they became the nation of Edom. That's what happened to Esau. Now, as I mentioned, the second part of this passage begins at verse 9, goes all the way to verse 43. And it is nothing more than one long list of names. And I scratch through this passage and say, uh, so what am I supposed to get out of this? What are you telling me? In the first place, I want to know what's here? Besides names, I mean, how do you organize this? What, what's, what's the organization of the rest of these verses? Now that I can figure out relatively easy. And the answer to that is this. Beginning in verse 9, And going through verse 14, he's giving us Esau's grandchildren. Now he told us earlier he had five sons and daughters. Now we're gonna say what happened to his grandchildren. By the way, remember how many wives he had? You forgot. Somebody said three. Very good, he had three wives and five sons. Well, the way this is organized is around those three wives. So verses 10 through 12 tell us the first wife had six grandchildren. Verse 13 tells us the second wife had four grandchildren. The uh, third wife, verse 14, then it just says she had three sons. Apparently, they didn't have children. So the point is that 9 through 14 is telling us about his grandchildren. Verses 15 through 19 are telling us about the tribes that came out of him. Look at verse 15. Uh, Genesis uh, 36 and verse 15 says, These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. See that word chiefs? That means they're heads of tribes. So these sons produced descendants who became tribes. Uh, They were, the chiefs were the heads of the tribes. And again, these verses are organized around the three wives. So the first wife in verses 15 and 16 had seven sons who became chiefs. In In verse 17, four sons became chiefs. In verses 18 and 19, three sons became chiefs. Now, if I read you these names, they would mean absolutely nothing. What you gotta remember is this, we're talking about Esau's descendants, and he had sons, he had grandsons, he developed chiefs of tribes. Then in verses 20 to 30, it talks about his predecessors in the land of edom so uh, verse 20 says these are the sons of sarah the horite you see that now wait a minute we we, we we're no longer talking about esau we're talking about the original inhabitants of the land now called edom and they are horites the hebrew word Horites means cave dwellers. Ah, I get asked all the time about the cave men. Uh, where do the cave men come from? My standard answer is people lived in caves throughout history, including down till this day. Now, what they mean by that is some evolutionists have told them that people lived in caves before they lived in, houses or tents, the book of Genesis doesn't talk like that. The book of Genesis talks like uh, they, from almost from the beginning, lived in cities, built buildings. However, it does point out, or refer to at least, people who lived in caves, and the original inhabitants of what is now called Edom, Currently, it's called Jordan, where they were cave dwellers. Now, let me explain. You ever heard of the city of Petra? Heard of Petra? If you go to the Middle East, you have to go to Amman, Jordan, which is the capital. Then you travel south. Now, you're in modern Jordan, which was ancient Edom. And then you come to the city of Petra. The book of Obadiah is a judgment against this one city, Petra. Now, uh, there's only one way to get into this city. There is a huge ravine of rock. At some places, as you go through this ravine, it's very, very, very high. Uh, Only one horse at a time can get past. So it was easy to defend this city. You just got up there with a bunch of rocks, and if an army tried to come through, they had to go one horse at a time, and you drop rocks on them, and you win. And they had a way to get water in there and so forth. I've been there. It's a fascinating place. And what you soon discover, you get through this ravine, and you get back in there, and the one thing you see, the only thing you see, there's some interesting carvings, are caves, Petra was a city in the mountains of caves. You see caves, they were cave dwellers. So Esau ended up in a cave, or at least he ended up in the land that was originally inhabited by cave dwellers. So that's verses 20 to 30. In verses 31 to 39, he seems to be talking about chiefs who became kings. Ah, see, we're growing into a nation. They became kings. And then it says they were had kings before Israel had kings. Then in verses 40 to 43, it goes back and says these are chiefs of Esau. Well, I thought you already told us about the chiefs of Esau. Back in verses 15 to 19, this time, they are dwelling there and they are kings. So that's the chapter. It's nothing more than his personal history, how he moved to Edom. And then it's the history of his grandchildren, the tribes, the predecessors that lived there, the kings that came out of there, all about the land of Edom. And that phrase I showed you Esau is Edom. What? Happened to Esau. He became Edom. Now there's the end of the chapter. Why don't you look at chapter 37. Verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Verse 2. This is the history of Jacob. Hmm, I'm gonna include verse one in chapter 36. That's where the chapter break should have come after 31. You know those are put in by people, not God. And the reason I'm gonna do that, and most that study Genesis agree, is that he brings up this phrase again, this is the history of. So very clearly, He starts out chapter 36, this is the generation of Esau, verse 1, verse 9, this is the generation of Esau, and he ends that section by saying, and this is the generation, I'm sorry, and Jacob dwelt in the land. Then he starts an entirely new section. So verse 37 goes with the discussion of Esau. Interesting observation. So what is the point? All right, how we doing? This is heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? That's why we call this Bible study. All right, if I were going to sum up this whole chapter, I'd say in the simplest possible terms, it's saying Esau became Edom. That's the point. He moved there and his descendants dwelt there and became tribes and kings and a nation that became Edom. So why is this chapter in the Bible? What is the spiritual point of this chapter? What are we to learn from this chapter? Well, let me make some suggestions. I think it is important in the context of the Old Testament that we understand who Edom is and where Edom came from. Because as soon as you get out of the book of Genesis and get into the Pentateuch, the next four books of the Bible, you're going to encounter Edom. So in the context of uh, the Old Testament, it goes all the way to the book of Obadiah, and Obadiah, they're still dealing with Edom, and talks about the fact that the descendants of Edom were the brothers of the descendants of Israel because they came out of Jacob and Esau. So uh, the Lord wants us to say, well, whatever happened to Esau? Well, let me tell you what happened to Esau because we're going to run into him later. That's all, I, that's all you need to know. Esau becomes Edom. But there's more here than that. And that is this. God promised to bless Esau. That came through the mouth of Jacob and it's recorded back in chapter 27. So one of the great spiritual truths of this chapter is God blessed Esau. God was faithful to his promise to bless Esau. So while this chapter is nothing but a long list of names that when you first read it makes no sense and you don't understand what's happening or where it's going, the bottom spiritual lesson here is God blessed Esau. Or to say the same thing another way, God was faithful to keep his promise to Esau. Got it? That's what we should put in our pocket and walk out of here with tonight. God has made promises, and he is faithful to those promises. Now you're going to say, well, what promises did he make to us? He didn't give us the land of Palestine. Well, let me conclude by looking at some of those promises. Turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Matter of fact, what I did is when it dawned on me that this was talking about the fact that God was faithful, um, I uh, thought, ooh, I remember that phrase in the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful. There it is. If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we originally have a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, by trusting him but as you well know, just because you trust Christ doesn't mean you don't sin again. So what happens when you sin again? Well, God has made a promise that if you confess the sin, he will forgive it. Now the book of Proverbs adds to this that you confess it and forsake it, but the point is he is faithful to forgive the sins of believers. So how's that? Is that good news? Yeah. You bet. Do you ever need that verse? My favorite question: Are you are you breathing? All right. Turn to First Corinthians chapter ten. First Corinthians chapter ten. Another time it appears he is faithful. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man but god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it so god is faithful to forgive if you sin and he's faithful you didn't have to sin to begin with he'd provide a way of escape now, that means you have to cooperate, by the way. And what I want to know is, what is the way of escape? Well, you want to, Would you like to know the way of escape? Sure. Look at the next verse. Therefore, my beloved, flee. Flee. Now, you need to trust the Lord. But the point is this. You're never in a position where you gotta. He will always provide a way for you to get out of that temptation. That's the point of these two verses. But the point is, he is faithful. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter five. 1 Thessalonians chapter five. 1 Thessalonians chapter five, it says in verse 24, he who called you is faithful who will also do it now what is do it well back up look at verse 23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit soul and body to be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ God promised that he would sanctify you which simply means set you apart unto him to make you holy, to make you in simple terms, more Christ-like. And he says he is faithful to do it. If you do what he says, he will be faithful to sanctify you. Now, one more. Back in Genesis, The real point of this passage may be chapter 37. So the whole point of chapter 36 is Esau ended up in, you forgot, Edom. But look at chapter 37 verse one, but Jacob is still in the land of Canaan. So God gave a promise to Esau to bless him, and he kept it. And in the meantime, well, Jacob is still in the land of Israel. He did not get what God promised to him, yet he is a sojourner there. He's a stranger there. He doesn't possess it. He does live there, but it's not his yet nor any of his descendants so what is that telling us and the answer is esau got it and jacob didn't and i think the point of that is some people get blessed and get the promise of god before others so what about the others that means you have to have a little bit of Patience, patience. The New Testament says God is faithful four times that I can find. And the fourth one is saying just what I just said. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, let us draw near with a pure heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, I started reading at verse 22, I'm now in verse 23, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying is God has promised us rewards when we meet him at the judgment seat of Christ, but we're not there yet. So what we have to have is patience until that time comes. So on the one hand, God is faithful. He will do it. On the other hand, you, have, you might have to be patient until it happens. So be patient. The Lord is working. It will, we will get all that he promised us someday. This chapter in Genesis then, illustrates that believers must be patient in waiting for the blessing of God. As someone has said, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. May I repeat that? Spiritual greatness takes time. It's a little slow but God is faithful, it will happen. Or another has said, the promised spiritual blessing demands patience and emphasizes that waiting while others prosper is a test of faithfulness and perseverance. So, you got two pockets. I said in one pocket put God is faithful in the other pocket put And we must be patient to inherit all of our blessings. Amen. Father, thank you for your promise to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, teach us patience. We tend to be very impatient, wanting you to do things in our time frame, according to our schedule. Lord, we just pray that you would give us the patience that as we obey you we have the assurance that you are working in our lives in jesus name amen